You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Well, good morning. It is, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, I know you've gone through some difficult weeks, uh, but life is still filled with joy. That's, that's the nice thing. There's a difference between joy and happiness. Uh, it's nice to be happy, but happiness is how you react to what's going on around you. Joy is something that you can have regardless of what's going on around you. And so it is a joy to be with you. Uh, we're praying for you. We love you. Uh, my wife Denise is with me. Uh, let me just introduce myself real quick. I, I am Fred McDonald. I'm the executive director for your Dakota Baptist Convention. Uh, we have about 85 churches in North and South Dakota that network together. Uh, we network together to proclaim the Great Commission uh, and to strengthen established churches, start new churches. That's what we're about. Uh, each of our churches is autonomous and under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and in, in accordance with His Word, each church governs themselves and makes their own decisions. But we've just decided, figured out there's some things we can do better together than apart. And so those things that, that we do together as churches, I get to help coordinate those things when pastors need a pastor, when churches need someone to come alongside and, and encourage or provide resources or connect with resources, that's what we are here for. And I want to thank each of you. Uh, Redeeming Grace Church is a, an important part of our Dakota Baptist Convention. Uh, your support of mission, uh, missions all around the world through the cooperative program giving and uh, through the Baker offering that we're receiving this month, all the things that we do together are, are ways that we partner together to take the name of Jesus Christ around the world. So I want to thank each of you for that. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this morning. Revelation chapter 12. I don't know if you have uh, noticed this yet or figured this out, but Satan has basically three tricks that he uses uh, to accomplish his work. And John exposed his, what I call his three-tool toolbox. In 1 John, John wrote, Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Those are Satan's three He's been using them from the very beginning. You can even go to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, when, when Satan tempted Eve, what did he do? Uh, Genesis 3, 6 says that she saw that the food was good for food, lust of the flesh. Delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes. And desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. Satan's been using the same three tricks from the very beginning to try to defeat God by destroying his people. Satan also has what I call a technique that he uses to discourage us when we do disobey. That is, he accuses us when he falls. He is like the, you remember, maybe, do you remember the kid in school, or maybe you were this kid? You'd, uh, that kid who would kind of instigate, prod, try to get you to do something wrong, and then the moment you do, run and tattle and tell the teacher on you? That's what Satan is. 
John called him the accuser of the brethren. When we sin, God gives us a a pathway to restoration. It's called repent. John said, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the easy part. Often, though, even as we experience the restored fellowship, the pain of guilt can linger, created by the accuser. We talked about it just a moment ago in our prayer time. It can come days later, weeks, months, even years. Has this ever happened to you? You've, uh, there's something that happened in your life and you ask for God's forgiveness and you experience that, that, that cleansing, you know you did, and then maybe weeks or even years later, it, it suddenly creeps into your mind. And once again, all those feelings come back, that guilt, that fear that discouragement, that's the accuser of the brethren, and that's how he works. That's how he seeks to discourage us when we do fall. So how do we overcome Satan? Well, I've got some good news for you this morning. Just as Satan has three tools in his toolbox, Jesus has put three tools in our toolbox, and John tells us about them in Revelation chapter 12. And he gave us these tools so that we could fight the enemy. John in the book of Revelation in this chapter was given a glimpse of a great of, of some things that were yet to come. He saw a great battle in heaven. And the tools that will win that battle are the tools that give us victory in life every day as we go through tough moments. I want to invite you to just stand one more time if you're able to and honor of God's Word. We're going to read verses 10 through 12 of Revelation chapter 12. John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, And they did not love their life, even to death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. You may be seated. Did you pick up the three tools there in verse 11? The blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and loving not our our own life, even unto death. Let's talk about those three tools. I I call this the overcomer's toolbox. Tool number one is the blood of the lamb. And this is the primary tool. In fact, I'll go so far to say this, that if you don't have this tool in your toolbox, you can't have the other two. The blood of the lamb is what makes those second and third tools possible. The blood of the lamb does a number of things for us. Number one, the blood of the lamb saves Our relationship with Jesus, it's a gift to us. It's free to us, but it came at a heavy price. Peter said, we were not bought with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus paid the price. He died and and rose again, and His death satisfied the price 
of God's holiness towards our sin, if not for the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our sin could not be forgiven. We would be eternally separated from God. There would be no new life. Jesus was our sacrifice. He provided, and here's your big word for the week, He provided propitiation. God is holy. He must judge sin. A few weeks ago at our home church, which is Hills of Grace Fellowship, I, I preached through Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. And it's a, it's a long passage. I don't just mean the number of verses, but it's a 14-count indictment. And, it, and Paul opens up that section with this question, what, do we think that we're any better than they are? And he then he uses 14 verses from the Old Testament to show all the sin and, and the depth of our sin and the, the price of our sin and the wrath of God that is directed towards sin. The blood of Jesus paid the price for that sin. He was propitiation. He was, uh, he was the satisfaction of, to God's, of God's wrath towards sin. You receive forgiveness, life, through the blood of the Lamb. When you repent of sin and by faith turn to Jesus Christ, Jesus said it very simply. He said, repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your sin and receive what Jesus did by dying for your sins and rising again to, to bring you into His forever family. The blood of the Lamb saves us. And by the way, this is critical. Jesus is the only sacrifice. He's not just a sacrifice. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, how many of you like English grammar? Am I the only person? I'm, well, I'm the only one. No, there's two of us and half of one over here. Um, here's your English grammar. For those of us who like grammar, the rest of you just endure. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's in the emphatic. There's an exclusiveness to it. I am the way, the only way, the truth, the only truth, the life, the only life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Being good is not good enough. Joining Redeeming Grace Church is a good thing to do, but it's not good enough to bring you into God's family. Getting baptized so many times, every fish in the lake knows your social security number. <clears throat> I tell folks, if you don't know Jesus... You're going to go down a dry center and come up a wet one. Baptism's a testimony. It, it, it represents what Jesus has done in our life when we repented and believed the gospel. Jesus is the only sacrifice. The blood of the Lamb saves. The blood of the Lamb does something else for us. It secures us. Jesus' blood is sufficient. You don't need anything else but the blood of Jesus Christ to bring you into God's family. And when you come into God's family, nothing can ever separate you from His love. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said that. He, he lists all these terrible things that might happen that could pull somebody away from something else. And he says, well, can any of this separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We, we overcome because of the blood of the Lamb. Many people worry that something's going to happen 
to cause them to lose their salvation. Why don't you think about that for just a minute? The blood of Jesus is strong enough to secure you for all of eternity. If, if, if it was possible for a person who genuinely was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ to become unsaved, there would have to be something in all of the creation that was stronger than the Creator Himself. That's stronger than the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of the Lamb saves you. It secures you. And it does one other thing for you. It sustains you. And that's John's context here. He's talking about those who have been attacked by Satan and they overcame. The blood of the Lamb is what sustains us as we go through difficult times. The price Christ paid is a powerful tool in resisting temptation. Knowing that Jesus died for me motivates me to want to live for Him. It creates a thirst to honor and please Him with my obedience. In fact, Jesus said it's our obedience to Him that that demonstrates our love for Him. So the price Christ paid is a powerful tool in resisting temptation, but it is also what draws me back to Him when I do stumble, because each one of us do. There come those times in life, even, even though we may have walked with Christ for years, we're drawn away. And so when I stumble, it's the blood of Christ that draws me back. Rather than destroy me with guilt and fear, Satan's taunts ought to point us to Jesus. In fact, I think the next time Satan comes and, and, and reminds you of something that is in your past, or, or maybe, some, maybe you've done something and, and, and he comes along and he taps you on the shoulder and he says, man, you must not be much of a Christian because Christians don't do things like that. Here's what you say to him. Thank you. Thank you, Satan. You're right. That's not the things that Christians ought to do. That's not the way to demonstrate that I have understand and live in the love of Jesus Christ. So I need to go to the one who said to me that if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Thank you. You've done me a good favor, Satan. You have pointed me back to the one who not only saves me, but who draws me back to himself when sin creeps into my life. The price Christ paid reminds me to run to the one who loved me and purchased me. And so we have that tool in our toolbox, the blood of the lamb. That enables us to overcome the darts of the enemy. We have a second tool because we have the blood of the lamb. Tool number two, do you see it there in verse 11? They overcame not only with the blood of the lamb, but with the word of their testimony. Prosecutors often rely on circumstantial evidence. A few weeks ago, I got a wonderful letter from Pennington County telling me that later this week I have to report for jury duty. And uh, I, I need you all to be praying, by the way, that because uh, we've got an annual meeting coming up in October, so we're praying that they won't need me. But, uh, you know, when prosecutors try a case, they often have to uh, rely on what's called circumstantial evidence. In other words, when no one saw what happened or no one is willing to testify as to what happened, they have to build their case on the circumstances surrounding the crime that when taken together 
prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person who is accused of the crime actually committed the crime. It's a challenging thing. It can be done. In fact, I was talking to one friend of mine who was a retired prosecutor, and she said, she said most of our cases are based on circumstantial evidence. But it's a challenge because without that testimony of someone who saw what happened, jurors can be left with this nagging little imp of doubt. Did it really happen? Yeah, I, boy, that evidence looks pretty bad, but nobody saw it, so did it really happen? It helps if somebody can boldly step forward and say, I saw what happened, here it is. The person's guilty. I need to share something with you. God's existence, His greatness, His character are on trial in our world today. There are many who deny His reality, or they say if He exists, He can't really be known. Several weeks ago, I was reading a news story, um, and, and it quoted this person who claimed to be a pastor, and this pastor wrote, Everyone knows that snakes don't talk, and Genesis isn't true. It's just a story. That terrifies me as a pastor, because I know one day I'm going to stand before God and give an account for how I have handled His Word. But that's a common view in our world today, even among those who are somehow connected with the teaching of the Bible. Unbelief. And if he is there, you can't really know him. And Satan will stoke this unbelief with a, a sense of pride. He creates a desire within our heart to be our own God. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament? The, the, the Hebrew boys were standing there. Nebuchadnezzar did not question whether their God existed, he said, who is this God who shall deliver you out of my hand? He felt, he, he had no problem with saying, yes, Israel has a God, but that God is over in Israel and we're not in Israel today. They, he questioned God's location. If you've read the story in the book of Daniel, you know that God showed him very clearly. He's not only God in Israel, but he was God in Babylon and he's God here today. Creation has enough circumstantial evidence to prove the existence of God. Paul wrote it this way, for what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, all you have to do is step outside and take a look at the creation around you. Have you seen some of the pictures that have been coming back? Every, boy, everybody was so amazed when the Hubble telescope started taking pictures. Now they've got this James Webb telescope that is, is, is going even farther and, and showing even clearer pictures of our universe. And, and some of these are just, out, they're just stunning. The beauty of God's creation and Paul says, just look up in the heavens, look around you, look at a tree, uh, look at the perfection of, the, of the, the human life. 
there is no one who's going to be able to stand before God one day and use lack of evidence as a, as a defense. The beauty, the perfection, the complexity of the creation demonstrate incontrovertibly that God is. Now, having said that, it is easier for someone to see the truth of God when they have a firsthand testimony from a witness. And that's what John's talking about here. The word of our testimony is our story of God alive in us, His work in us. Our experiences with God give a strong evidence to the lost. It's a bold declaration of how Jesus saved and transformed us, and it's powerful. In Acts chapter 4, it says Peter and John answered the religious leaders, whether it be right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. What God has done in our life, how He has saved you, the transformation that has taken place is your testimony. And that word is powerful in the lives of others. It gives us evidence for the lost. It also gives us ammunition to defeat the enemy. When Satan seeks to discourage, we can fight back with the word of our testimony. Jesus fought the enemy. How did Jesus fight the enemy when he was tempted? Three words. It is written. Satan is a defeated enemy, and he knows it. By the way, have you, ever, have you ever thought, I remember thinking this years ago that the battle between God and Satan was that Satan was really trying to win over God. And then I came to this passage and I realized that's not Satan's goal. He knows he loses. Where do you see that? Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, and I need my glasses to see it. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. Satan's read the back of the book. He knows who's going to win. And he's seeking to take whoever he can with him. And if he can't take you, he will discourage you so that you don't share your story with anyone else. And show them of the love of Jesus Christ. But one day the accuser of the brethren is going to be on the receiving end. Jesus himself is going to bring the accusation. Convict. Announce the verdict. Satan will face Jesus as prosecutor, star witness, judge, jury, and executioner. And until that day, the word of our testimony blunts his arrows. I heard somebody say once, next time Satan reminds you of his past, of your past, remind him of his future. He's a defeated enemy. And we overcome because of the blood of the Lamb. And because of the blood of the Lamb, we have a testimony. And we overcome with the word of our testimony. I do need to let you know there are, there are two aspects of your testimony that are important. There's a living word and a spoken word. And oftentimes, these two things are put at odds with each other. Some say, you really don't need to talk about Jesus. 
Just live this wonderful, kind, gracious life, and everybody's going to see the difference in you, and they're going to want what you have. And that happens sometimes. Others will say, well, it's good to live a good life, but God's Word is so powerful, your conduct really doesn't matter. So what's more important, the living Word or the spoken Word? Let's settle that here real quick. Our testimony does involve a living Word. Jesus said in Matthew 23, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, do what they tell you, but not what they do. They preach, but they don't practice. You ever heard the phrase, practice what you preach? Did you know that comes out of Scripture? Jesus warned the people of His day that the, the religious leaders, they, they, they often preached the right message, but their, their life did not match. And when our life does not match our message, it confuses lost people. And, and we hand ammunition to the enemy to accuse us with. When our life does not match the message, it's like handing a baseball bat to Satan and say, go ahead, just club me over the head as hard as you can. The wit, but a, <clears throat> for others to believe and to deflect Satan's arrows, we've got to live like Jesus. Having said that, a well-lived life doesn't replace a boldly spoken testimony. The witness's life determines credibility, but it's the story that convinces the jury. Let's go back to our prosecutor. Let's suppose our prosecutor came into the, the, the trial and, and said to the judge, you know, judge, I've got this wonderful witness, saw everything that happened. Guy's guilty. That This, this, this uh, witness can, can just clear everything up. But, you know, he really doesn't like to talk. And so I've made a videotape of him helping a, a little old lady across the street and doing disaster relief and, 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 and helping orphans and, and all that. I, well, he's got a great life. I'll just play this in, in place of him coming and testifying. What do you think the judge would say? Uh, that lawyer would be laughed out of the room. The witness needs to be credible, but he has to have a story to share. Paul in Romans 10 verses 13 through 15, laid out a logical gospel progression. He said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, declares the truth. And then he starts asking some questions. But how can they call if they don't believe? Hmm. And how can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? And how can someone tell them if they haven't been sent? And then just to make the point clear that we are the ones who've been sent, he quotes from Isaiah. Here's how Isaiah said it. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings good news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We have been sent with a story to tell others of who Jesus Christ is. And so walking for Jesus is not a substitute for talking for Jesus. Talking about Jesus does not excuse not walking with Jesus. It's not enough to walk the walk. It's not enough to talk the talk. We overcome the work of the enemy in our life and in the lives of others when we are walkie-talkies. Walk the walk and talk the talk. And so our second tool... 
is the word of our testimony. There's one last tool. We overcome because of the blood of the Lamb, what Jesus did for us on the cross. We overcome with the word of our testimony of the change He has made in our life. And we have one more thing, one more tool that helps us to overcome the work of the enemy, the accuser of the brethren. They love not their lives even unto death. I want you to travel back in history with me. The day is February 23rd, 155 A.D. A bishop from Smyrna by the name of Polycarp, who had been a student of the Apostle John who wrote these words. He is standing before the Roman proconsul, and the Roman proconsul says to him, Curse the Christ, and you shall live. John's former student said, For eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You promised the fire that lasts but a little while. The fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly cannot be quenched. But why delay? Come, do what you will. And they did. And Polycarp was burned at the stake because of the name of Jesus. He did not love his life even unto death. Christian's history, the hallways of it, are lined with the portraits of overcomers. They did not overcome with swords or arrows. They overcame with their lives. Beginning with the deacon Stephen, through the missionaries today, John said they loved not their lives even unto death. They loved Jesus more than life itself. What a contrast to the philosophy of our day. Causes are advanced with vengeance war rather than self-sacrifice. Enemies are defeated with retaliation, not humility. Pride is one of the deadliest attitudes. Solomon wrote, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Our, Our culture has the opposite view. Take care of number one. If it feels good, do it. If you don't stand up for yourself, no one else is going to do it. Hit me once and I'll hit you twice and you won't get up again. Bitterness, payback, escalation, that's what fuels our relationships today. It has infected families, our politics, even churches. And it litters society's highway. In the movie Fiddler on the Roof, how many of you love Fiddler on the Roof? Well, there's a few more than love grammar, so I'm I'm doing better. In the movie Fiddler on the Roof, the Russian Jews of Anatevka are ordered to leave their homes. One of the villagers calls out for the men to fight. He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Is that not what the scriptures say? Tevier, the main character, looks at him and says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Very good. That way the whole world will be blind and toothless. Jesus called his followers to a different standard. He said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Someone compels you to go a mile, go two. Love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Do not overcome evil with evil, but with good. Uh, You see, the, the accuser of the brethren understands what pride, how pride wars against what Jesus taught us. He thinks he can derail our effectiveness, and that all he has to do is motivate us to love our lives more than Jesus. Peter called him a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
he goes on to say that it is humility and a firm faith that resists Satan. And when we resist Satan with humility and a firm faith, here's what Peter says will happen. The God of grace who has called you to eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What silences the accuser? Loving Jesus more than our own desires and will. Loving Jesus more than our own concerns. Loving Jesus more than life itself. Jesus overcame through a cross and an empty tomb. Stephen overcame under a hail of stones. Polycarp overcame in the midst of a blazing fire. They overcame because they loved not their lives, even unto death. Redeeming Grace Church, you are overcomers. Not because of who you are, not because of what you know, not because of what you possess or anything that you do. Conquer the discouragement, the pain, the arrows of the enemy with three things, the blood of the Lamb, the word of your testimony, and love Jesus more than life itself. Let me pray for you. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. There is no one like you, and so we worship you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here in this room. Lord, that the accuser of the brethren would be blunted, that he would be silenced. Not because of anything that anybody in this room can do, not because of how good anybody here is, or what great strategies and plans that anyone in this, in this room might have. Silence the accuser, Lord, with the blood of Jesus, the word of their testimony, and give them a love for Jesus that is greater than anything, even life itself. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.